Hi, I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespot.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women and author of the Amazon bestseller, You're Not Broke, You're Pre-Rich. And this is The Wallet. The Wallet is here to help you make better financial decisions by talking honestly about money. I'll be sharing my best tips, inspiring you to take charge of your financial futures and talking to an array of awesome guests from all walks of life, employees, freelancers, entrepreneurs, and money experts. Many of us have never been taught how to manage our money. This includes how to budget and how to plan for the future, but also how to save in the short term for the things we really want. My guest today is Yorana Ogonkwo, who started her career as a financial advisor helping wealthy clients to manage their money. Today, she is the CEO and founder of Cashmere, an app that is helping young aspirational consumers learn how to save through setting up a virtual piggy bank, enabling them to make guilt-free luxury purchases and to help them to save for the lifestyle they desire. Cashmere is empowering consumers to manage their finances by making considered purchases, turning them away from fast fashion and instant gratification and developing their saving skills through planning. It was fantastic to hear about Yorena's incredible journey from working in finance to becoming a female entrepreneur in the e-commerce and fintech space. In today's episode, she shares some of the challenges she had faced in launching Kashmir and her experience in gaining funding for the platform as a young black female. We also take a look at the future of saving with some of the innovative solutions that are on the horizon and discuss the power of collaborative saving. I also wanted to let you know that we are not financial advisors. So the articles, the information made available on Vespot.com and in this podcast are provided just for educational purposes and do not constitute financial advice. So make sure you consult with an independent financial advisor for advice on your specific circumstances. Thank you. Hi, Yorena. Hello. Hi, Emily. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. Um, how is your second lockdown at Kashmir <laughs> and working from home? <laughs> um, not too bad, actually. Not too bad. I mean, it's been a very hectic past few months. I can't complain. It's it's been it's been a great. Well, it's been it's been a roller coaster. Roller coaster. <laughs> interesting year. Yeah. Very interesting year. <laughs> so you're gonna tell me everything today. We're talking about. I mean, we're recording this like we're a month away from Christmas. So I guess. You know, you're very busy on the Kashmir platform. Yeah. Prior to launching uh, Kashmir, you worked as a financial advisor and you also worked in, in finance. Can you tell me, you know, what's what's your background and uh, and where you come from? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yes, I have a very heavy finance background. So at school, I studied like business studies and accounting and economics and maths and all of that. And then after my A-levels, I worked at KPMG for a year. Um, so I did like, they had a gap year program back in 2010. So I worked in the forensic department, which was really, really fun. I actually enjoyed it so much because it was like my first like proper, proper job. So yeah, that was really fun. And then after that- That sounds I, very fun, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had to do a lot of like investigations and stuff. Yeah, yeah it was really cool. Yes, yeah, so after that, I then uh, went to University of Exeter and I studied economics and finance. And then I graduated in 2014 and then went straight into working in private wealth management. So I worked as a financial advisor at a private wealth management firm in London. 
Investment, basically managing investments and providing financial advice for um, high net worth individuals. So things like, you know, advising them on like their ISAs, their pensions, their estates. There was like divorce stuff and also like loads of different things and like insurance and everything. I'm obviously like doing the research into like the different like understanding their um, risk profile and then recommending the funds that they should invest in and so on. So again, that was like a really interesting role. It was something I was not aware of while I was at university. I didn't think an industry like that existed. I got into it because they actually headhunted me um, very randomly, like via LinkedIn. That was like a really, really interesting career. And I think that going through that, I worked there for about four years, really helped me a lot in terms of like building and launching Kashmir. Kashmir is a really cool app where you're helping young uh, women and men actually uh, to make guilt-free purchases. So it's really helping people to save for a luxury item instead of maybe paying with your credit card and trying to think, okay, how can I now pay for something I already (laughs) bought? So do you think actually working in finance and working as a a financial advisor helped you and inspired you to, to launch Kashmir? Yeah, there, there are elements of it that helped me. So one of the things that we did for, like I did for my clients when I worked as a financial advisor was long-term cash flow planning. So like basically sitting down with the client and getting them to sort of talk about what lifestyle they wanted to live in the next like 20, 30 years or however. And then we work backwards. So like, like so for example, like they want to have 20 million pounds in retirement. So what do they need to be doing right now in order to get that 20 million pounds in retirement? We and all what- went 20 million. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it could be things like they want to be able to like have paid off all their mortgages. You know, they want to have paid off like their children's private school fees. They want to have like enough money to pay for their parents' care home. All that. So they want to be able to have X amount of holidays, all that kind of stuff. So basically like really paint the picture of what lifestyle they want. And then we then say, okay, cool. You should be maximizing your ISA contributions for all, everyone in your family right now. You need to be doing this, you need to be doing that, pension contributions, and so and so. And then we sort of map it out. There's like a massive Excel spreadsheet that we we use with like multiple formulas. So sort of taking that same concept of like looking at, you know, the aspirational consumer and understanding, okay, so what kind of lifestyle do you want in the next year, the next couple of years? You want to be able to save up to have enough money to go on a holiday for your birthday or for Christmas or whatever. So it's like, okay, cool. So how much money do you need to start saving up now in order for you to achieve that? Because one thing I realized that a lot of people don't like, even though, yes, we should save money for like, you know, the important stuff like, you know, emergency funds and pensions and all these things. But life is also for the living. You know, you also it's also good to treat yourself because you can't just be working and saving all the time that like you also need to enjoy yourself. And a lot of times because of the way like things are marketed towards, it's like, here's this amazing thing. It's like two thousand pounds. Buy it, and it's like whoa. You know, like for you, for most people, they're like, I don't have two thousand pounds to just drop on a handbag or drop on a holiday. Like I actually have to plan ahead. But we're not really taught how to plan ahead for those things. So that's kind of like what Kashmir does. Like it really breaks it down. That like you know what, maybe something might be a thousand pounds, and you feel like it's a lot of money. But if you actually break it down into like, oh, if you save up a hundred pounds for ten months, you actually have that thousand pounds in cash, and you can then buy that item without thinking that you need to like take out a loan or like you know do like a Klarna buy now pay later type of thing, which is like you know adding more debt into your like financial portfolios. So I was basically taking those concepts from you know, helping millionaires manage their lifestyle and just kind of taking it into helping everyday people manage their lifestyle. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I, I mean, I love it. I'm a you know big fan of of financial literacy, so you know this really resonates with me. And, and I think the aspect about spending is really interesting because we think that when we start having a budget and when we want to start you know saving for the future, we have to like compromise on our on our current lifestyle and make huge sacrifices. So we have to make some, but actually spending is an is an important part. I think also maybe of you know money mindset and you know managing our finances. Before we go into financial literacy, maybe can you tell us how Cash Me works and you know do you partner with with fashion brands I mean how do you yet help your users yeah sure so so it's pretty simple so we're sort of like combining like the luxury e-commerce with I guess fintech or like money management so how it basically works is when a user signs up they can browse through a wide range of products so we've got partnerships with different retailers like Farfetch, Harvey Nichols, Harrods, Selfridges and so on you can browse through the, um, the products that we curate um, on, the, on the Cashmere website and then you can add start adding to your wish list and then it will tell you so you can decide okay I want to save up 100 pounds every month it will tell you how long it will take for you to hit your goal so you add the item to your wish list connect to your bank account to your Cashmere wallet so so every month be like okay i want to save 100 pounds on the first of every month on the first of every month that 100 pounds goes into your cashmere wallet and you can track how close you are towards hitting your goal and it's a lot more interactive it's a lot more like a much more fun personalized experience for you as a user compared to just like using your like standard like bank accounts or like normal savings account and then once you've hit your goal um it, you'll get a notification saying like congratulations you've hit your goal now you can buy the item and then you yeah you just buy the item directly on cashmere and then users also get up to three percent cash back when they make that purchase so if for example you one item that was a thousand pounds you get 30 pounds back towards buying your next item so and which is a lot more than you would get if you were saving in a normal bank account because you know interest rates right now is like 0.00 something <laughs> zero <laughs> it zero percent honestly like the other day i got i got a letter from my bank saying like oh your interest rates are going to be cut i'm like cut like how much further get can to you what? <laughs> <laughs> it's already like pretty much zero percent so so yeah so that's kind of like what we're doing right now and then right now we're focusing on um, luxury fashion and beauty but we are looking to expand into other things so like beauty experiences other experiences wellness um luxury gadgets travel and all of that stuff so really looking at like you know the aspirational consumer and like what kind of things do they want to you know help them like live the life that they deserve that's what we that's how we we, we phrase it and then sort of helping them make better financial decisions in order to achieve that yeah, that's that's really cool. And when we use uh, Cashmere, I mean, how do you think we learn about you know managing better our, our money? I mean, w- what's the like the education piece in in Cashmere? So because saving for a big item, you know, is is quite a big goal. You know, what are maybe the behaviors of of users and and what do they get from apart from making their purchase, like in terms of behavior and and improving their behavior on the platform? Yeah, sure. So so one of the important things that people start to learn is that whole like the discipline of like saving for something and hitting a goal, because we all know that like that, you know, that whole feeling of like once you've achieved something like, whoa, like, you know, you feel good about yourself. So by sort of like teaching them how to save for those like short term goals that they might want, if there's like a handbag or whatever, they can then translate those same skills that they develop from that into saving for more long term goals. So if it's like saving up for a property deposit or a pension or whatever. So it's still the same skills and and knowledge that you're getting from that. We also run um, personal finance workshops for our users to help them be good with their money. So teaching them around about things like, you know, saving and budgeting, teaching them about how pensions work, how property works, all of that stuff. And what we've seen is that a lot of our users, so we, we, so we have this, this, there's um, workshops in, in, 
partnerships with like bigger other bigger fintechs so for example the investing workshop we did that with wealth simple the pensions one we did that with pension b and so on so what we've seen is that like because they've started to get this knowledge about like understanding how stocks and shares works, how pensions work, all of that. They then like, oh, okay, I've learned how to save up for a handbag. So now I'm, I I can learn how to save up for a property or save up for a pension and things like that. So I guess it's all sort of interlinked because it's still the same level of like discipline that you would need in order to achieve both. So Kashmir is part of the fintech industry. And actually, a few weeks ago, I interviewed my friend Nina Mohenti. So we talked a lot about like the really cool startups and fintech in the space. So I just wanted to know with Kashmir, how do you leverage technology? How do you use technology? And also, what are you seeing in, uh, you know, in the space? What are the cool things you're, you're seeing around you? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, there's a lot of exciting things coming up within the fintech space. Um, I think definitely the UK is like probably a pioneer in the in the world when it comes to that. So one of the things I'm really excited about is I'm not sure if you're aware of, you know, the PSD2 open banking. So basically like where banks open up their technology so that it's easier for other like for new companies to leverage the data that banks have on their customers so that we can create better experiences for our users. So, for example, like a, a use case would be um so with Kashmir, one of the things that we're looking to integrate very soon is doing like affordability checks for users. So what that means is that when a user signs up and they connect their bank account to their Kashmir wallet, the, the technology will be able to read and understand what their disposable income is and be able to you know, suggest to them what's actually a reasonable amount for them to be able to save into their Kashmir wallet based on their current spending. So because right now, you know, a user can sign up and be like, oh, I want to save £200 a month. But is that really affordable for them to save £200 a month in their Kashmir wallet? And obviously, because we're all about, you know, conscious uh, sustainable consumption you know we don't want to create be part of the problem so yeah so it's things like that and then also another thing is like you know looking at seeing how we can help users save money and in other places so if like we know that they've said they want to cut down on things like you know their takeaway spending or like taxis and all that so it will be able to read that and see like if for example a user is spending too much a bit too much money on delivery on uber eats or whatever it'll be able to tell them hey like spending too much money on delivery maybe you should cut down on that and then you'll be able to get your gucci bag much quicker and all that so it's yeah so making it a lot more like personalized experience and for me that's like really really important and it's like what one of the it's probably the main thing i'm really excited about um when it comes to you know the fintech and you know open banking and all that I quite like that you talk about sustainable consumption. I think this is really important and maybe that also comes from your, you know, financial advisor background. So to make sure people are not overspending on, on some product. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it very briefly earlier on, but what do you think about, you know, buy now, pay later schemes? We've had, a, you know, heated debate on, on, on Instagram, on, on Vespol. I'm not very pro uh, these schemes because I think they really force people to buy stuff that they don't necessarily mean. But yeah. maybe you can give us an overview of what are the different, you know, payment schemes available out there and, and maybe what's the what's happening? Do you think users are spending more or do you think it's actually helping users to have these type of schemes available to them? So for me, I'm very much anti buy now, pay later. I think there's only limited use cases where I feel like Binary Pay Later makes sense and it's okay for you to use that. So for me, I don't believe you should be using Binary Pay Later to, to do your ASOS shopping or like pretty little thing shopping and all that just because these products are already very cheap. And the fact that like they're encouraging you to take out credit in order to buy this, it's like, now nah, maybe you should just wait a bit until you have the cash and then buy the item. I think the times when buy now, pay later might make sense is if you're buying items that are like sort of one-off things that you're not going to be buying a lot of it. So let's say you need to get a new laptop, for example, 
I think buy now, pay later is okay for that because it's not like you're going to be buying 20 laptops within a week or if you need to buy like a washing machine or a TV. Do you know what I mean? Like things are like long. Like things that, yeah. yeah, exactly. And things that are like durable, like they're going to be one-off purchases. For things like clothes or like beauty, you're going to be using this very much, very regularly. You're going to be wanting more clothes. And I think once you sort of start to get into that habit of always putting it on, you know, on Klarna or Clarepay or any of these companies, you might get into a habit of thinking that like, oh yeah, like I'll just think about how I'm going to pay off later on and not understanding like actually, no, you should have the cash to buy it. And another thing is like, I know like with the buy now, pay later companies, they always say like part of their, their, the way they try and attract more businesses onto their platform is like, oh, we increase your average basket value and things like that. But in, in reality, what happens is that when people use buy now, pay later to buy clothes and shoes and things like that, they do it because they want to buy multiple things, try it on and then return the rest. So for a retailer, I might, let's say I'm, I had a, a clothing brand and I was using buy now, pay later. Like I can see like all oh, my customers are now spending, I don't know, 500 pounds every time they buy rather than 200 pounds where they normally like previously before using Klarna. But it's not because they, they have, they want to buy more stuff. It means, it just means that they just want to buy loads of things, try it on and return it without ever actually having to pay for it. Because normally if you were to pay with cash, you have to, you know, actually part as a customer, you'd have to part with that cash and then buy the items, try it on, decide, okay, I want to return it, return it. And then you now have to wait how many yep. days to get your refund back. Whereas if you're using Klarna, you actually no pound has left your account. So that's actually what's happening. Like when I speak to people who do use, you know, this product for, to buy like clothes and stuff, that is the reason why they do it because it's, it's a very, it's a free way to get clothes, try it on and return whatever they don't want. It's like, so we need to think about what's actually the net amounts that retailers are getting and not just the overall gross average, average basket value. So yeah, so for me, like I'm not for <laughs> buying a pay later unless it's like very specific things. Like I, you know, like I said, like if you wanted to buy a new washing machine or something like that, that you're not really going to be buying a lot of um, within a short period of time. Yeah, and and I agree with you on the you know buy now pay later. And I think one one of the dangers for me was you know you do your online shopping and at the end you had, you see your your basket. And maybe you've put a lot of items and, you know, you want to remove a few because you usually pay with your card. But now that you have this option to buy now, pay later, you're like, yeah, let's leave them in all in the basket. Let's order yeah. everything because I'm not going to pay for it. But also, you know, you, then you receive this huge package and sometimes you just forget about it or you leave it there and you forget to return it. So I, I, maybe that's another danger also of like ordering too much and then, you know, forgetting yeah. to get a refund for the stuff you actually didn't use. I wanted to talk about uh, sustainability. So I think we've seen a growing concern for sustainable fashion. And I know you work with fashion brands and now I see a lot more like millennials, a lot more people wanted to buy uh, in a more like sustainable way. So really understand the, you know, the products they were getting, how they were made and what was the impact on the planet. Is this something you've been integrating with Kashmir? Yes. I mean, we've, we've definitely been seeing like a growing number of our users, like asking for, you know, more sustainable brands um, to be added to the, to the platform. So I do think, you know, there is a growing need for it. I don't think we're fully there yet when in terms of like people are really, really care about having sustainable brands. I know a lot of people, I think for majority of people, we do want you know, to do things that are good for the planet and you know all of that stuff. But most people aren't actually active when it comes to doing that. It's like one of the things that, oh, like, you know, it'd be nice if I was only focused on sustainable brands. But in reality, it's just hard to really do that, especially considering like, you know, a lot of sustainable brands tend to be more expensive than, you know, the, 
you know, just the normal fast fashion brands. So how we try and make sure that things are sustainable. So we focus again on like, because we're, we're a fintech company, we focus more on like sustainable consumption in terms of like, you know, if you're saving up for, if you there's, an, there's a handbag, for example, that you want and you're, you, it's taking you five, six months to save up for that handbag, it means that it's actually something you want because you've had to wait that long yeah. to buy it rather than you've just been on Instagram, you saw a handbag and your favorite influencer, you just bought it straight away because that's kind of what Instagram is pushing us towards, especially with this new shop thing integration that they've they've, they've launched. And it, it's clear from like, even with our data points where we've seen that like since we've, since Cashmere's existed, we've had no returns at all. You know, the average for, you know, the e-commerce is 25% return rate. Uh, we are on 0%. And that's because people are actually consciously choosing to buy things they want rather than things that they just feel like they, they want because they've seen it on Instagram or whatever. So we try and be a sustainable brand because, you know, like the worst thing, you, you don't want it to be like people are buying stuff. They're like, oh, don't really need it. Chuck, chuck it somewhere or like they return it. And it's like, that's also bad for the environment and all that. Do you know what I mean? So we really want to make sure people are buying things that they want, not things that they feel they want. Obviously not every single luxury bag is high quality, but for a lot of them, they are high quality and they will last a long time. Like I know, for example, like there's a Fendi bag I bought in 2014, 2015, and I literally carried it to work every single day and it's still very durable. <laughs> yeah. Whereas if I had, you know, bought a bag from like, I don't know, like prison is a thing or like, you know, top shop, I know for a fact it's not going to last six years. So again, that's also thinking about the environment because like if I was buying, you know, much cheaper bags that don't last long, they would last for maybe a few months. I'll have to chuck them in the bin, buy another bag and stuff. Whereas I've only had that one bag for a very long time and, you know, it's not causing any damage to the the environment. Yeah. And uh, Yurana, how do you anticipate collaborative saving and consumption to actually evolve in the next few years? So we we did a partnership with a company called Stepladder last year to sort of like test how we can do some collaborative saving within Kashmir. So what that meant was that we got about 10 girls to save £50 every month into their Kashmir wallet all at the same time. So every month a girl was getting £500. And we saw that it actually worked really well because one of the things when it comes to saving is that sometimes when you're doing it on your own, it's harder because it's like there's no real accountability. Whereas when it's you and a group of people, a group of friends, you know, human beings, we are inherently competitive in some ways. So you don't want to be that person who's not hitting their goal. So we noticed that like, you know, we people were people were actively saving, people were no one was dropping out, everyone was actually actively saving towards hitting the goal, the 500 pound goal that they wanted to have. So yeah, so we were like, great, like, you know, this is something that we could actually roll out to everybody in terms of getting people to like set up groups with their friends, with their colleagues, with whoever, with their family and actively save towards something. So like, I know, for example, like friends, people always have like, oh, they, they want to get like the items for like, maybe they're going on a holiday in a few months. And they want to get like a nice handbag to go with their holiday. So people could like, you know, you can get a group of friends who are going on the same holiday to save together as a group and then towards buying the items for their holiday and things like that. So there's so much opportunity that we can exploit from this. I think group saving is great because it's just so much more fun. And, you know, especially when you can communicate with everyone, you can see how everyone's getting on with their, with their goals and so on. So yeah, there's definitely a lot, a lot of um, opportunity in there. Oh, great. I, I mean, I'd love to try this. I mean, I, I see the power of, you know, groups uh, via, via Instagram and, you know, people like collectively working towards one goal. So it's yeah. great to see it apply to not only spending, but actually to, to saving. So well done. I think, I, you know, I'm really looking forward to, to try this, this option. I wanted to take you back a little bit in terms of 
funding for, for Kashmir because Kashmir is a fintech and I assume you needed some money to, uh, to build the, the platform. So I wanted to talk about more like your entrepreneurial journey. Why did you decide to, to ask for funding and who helped you uh, to, to build Kashmir to date? Yeah, sure. So funding-wise, I know when I when I first had the idea for Kashmir, I was obviously still working in finance. So I was like, I'm going to self-fund this for a bit and see how long I can I can carry on with this because I think it's all, it's really important to try and self-fund if you can, just because you start to learn how to manage money better. Because when you've got limited resources, you start to, you you start to become a lot more clever about money. Whereas when you've got millions of pounds, you just like you just throw money at a problem and it was solved. <laughs> so I always try like I always try and advise people that if you can try and self-fund your, your project um, or your business um, before actively going out to seek funding. So when it got to the point where I was like, okay, cool, I need to actually get money. I need to get external funding because I wanted to leave my job in finance and sort of focus on cash my full time. So um, I spent quite a, a lot of time, I think about a year or so, sort of like building my network in terms of building my network of other founders, investors, people within the startup ecosystem, and just talking about what I was building. Because one of the things I realized was that talking about your business like, is really important because yeah. you don't know who knows other people. So I definitely have had situations where I've been at an event. I'm like, hey, this is what I'm building, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, cool. Like I know someone who you, I can connect you to who's done something similar or is an investor or is you know is a marketer, whatever. Cause that was how I, that's how I got my first investor. I was basically at an event and I was speaking to a lady and I told her about what I was building. And she was like, Oh, I've got a friend who's an angel investor. Like, you know, when you're ready to raise investment, like, let me know. And I'll connect you to him. And, you know, a few months down the line, he ended up investing 75 K into my business. So just, yeah. So it's things like that. So really like putting yourself out there, really networking, talking about your idea to as many people as you can, because then you get feedback. Although sometimes some feedback are not necessarily relevant, but you can get good feedback from certain people. Um, and then also you can get connected to people that you might not realize you actually are close to and um, getting connected to. So, um, so that's kind of like what I did building networks with founders, either founders in my, in my stage or founders who a few stages ahead of me who raised investment just to get advice on like, you know, how to put together like a pitch deck and what important information do I need to do? Like how to pitch all of that stuff. So yeah, it was a mixture of like a million things <laughs> um, <laughs> and then just trying to figure it out. And sometimes and a bit of winging it too also. <laughs> but I like that you said that, you know, we should talk about our own projects. And for me, that was the same with, with Vespot because I think initially, founders may be like, you know, I'm, I'm worried that someone's going to steal my idea yeah. and I want to talk about it. Now, this, I mean, if it happens, whatever, but in the end, it's all about execution. I think, you know, there's not really like new ideas or there's a few new ideas out there, but it's really, you know, what you're going to make from, yeah. from this idea. So yeah, exactly. talk about it, talk about it a lot. What were the, the challenges raising money? Because, you know, we talk about that all the time. Women don't get a lot of funding, VC funding, black women even less. So what were the challenges in this journey? And, and I guess you will want to raise more money also in, in the future. So how can you position yourself and, and you know, be in the best place to, to raise this money? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the biggest challenges with raising money is that it's still very much, even though it's starting to open up a bit, but it's still very much network driven in terms of like, who do you know? Who knows you? Who's in your network? All of that stuff. So people ascribe a lot of value to you based on who else you know, which, you know, it's not a good way of it. Like, you know, just because someone is very well connected doesn't mean they're a good business person. And there's a lot of like, you know, if you come from a certain background in terms of like 
education, like, you know, or like where you've worked, like maybe you've previously worked at like Google and all this stuff. It's like, he's like, oh yeah, great. This, this person must be a great business person. But it's like, that's not really the best way to judge just because they went to Oxford and then worked at Google. But unfortunately, that's kind of how like the VC space um, currently works. So what happens is that because majority of people who do tend to have these backgrounds tend to be white men, they're the ones who constantly get get the investments because they know the people who have the money. Like I know so many times I've spoken to, you know, white male founders about like, you know, their fundraising journey. And they're like, oh yeah, you know, I just raised money from like people, my friends and like yeah. you know, my, from my colleagues. And they're like, they've raised like a million pounds. I'm like, I literally have no <laughs> friends or former colleagues who I can put together to give me a million pounds. Like I literally have nothing like that. But yeah, but they just make it seem as if it's like, oh yeah, yeah. You know, you just do friends and family round, raise a million pounds from them. It's yeah. like, wow, it's a completely different life. Did you raise from from previous uh, like, like colleagues or did you think your, prof- your professional network uh, helped you also in, in in raising money? Not really, because the, the background that came from the company I worked for was very much traditional. So it's very much traditional finance, whereas, you know, the world I'm in right now is very much modern finance. So it's it's a completely different world. But, you know, like I know people who've worked in like fashion, for example, and they've started their own like fashion company, a fashion tech company, and they've been able to raise from like their former colleagues from like Burberry and Gucci and all of that stuff. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, Whoa, I wish I had that. That's one of the main issues that we find when it comes to um, women and, you know, non-white founders um, raising money. Another thing is that, you know, there's that bias already. So like things around like, you know, the type of questions that investors ask women is very different from the type of questions investors ask men. So investors ask men questions around like, oh, what's your vision and all this like potential and all that kind of stuff. Whereas for women, they're like, you know, what's your customer acquisition cost? What's like how much revenue you're generating? Like all of these like really specific questions where like at the early stages, you're still trying to figure that bit out. That's the point of early stage investing. Like that's part of early stage company. You're still figuring things out. You just need that money to help you figure all that stuff out. If you haven't really got all of that all panned out, and sometimes even when you do have all of that panned out, they still expect a lot more from you compared to like white male founder who just be like, oh yeah, you know, like, I've got this vision to be like this. And they're like, okay, cool. Here's five million pounds, <laughs> which is really you, hard. You didn't get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so Richard, it's, it's, it's very frustrating. And I know there's like some work being done to help, you know, democratize access to finance for yeah. you know, women and, you know, non-white founders and things like that. But we still have a very, very long way to go. I mean, how did you, did you overcome these, these barriers and, you know, how did you answer these, like these really difficult questions? Is it all about maybe preparing more? I know, you know, working in finance, sometimes I was thinking maybe I should, you know, work more than the guys. And so my work is going to be more visible and I need to be extra, extra prepared. So is it more work or is it also maybe trying to find investors that maybe look like you or would understand who you are, understand your mission a bit better? Yeah, so it's a, yeah, so it's a mixture of both. I mean, definitely having to over-prepare, it does help because you just don't know how the meetings are going to go. So like trying, making sure that like, I'm, I just seem as like, like I'm the best person for this. And it's, it's frustrating that as women, we have to like over-prepare just to, you know, we do like double the work just for 50% of the, of the opportunity. And it's, it's, yeah, it's very frustrating, but like, that's just the nature of the game, unfortunately. And I remember like I was, as, when I speak to um, one of my friends, Sharmadine Reed from Founder Beauty Stack and the amount of work that she does, I've never seen anyone work this hard before in my life ever. But then I see like, you know, other like white male founders who I know, they don't do that. They don't even do a, f- a fraction of what she does. 
but then yeah. they get a lot of opportunities and a lot of money and all that which is very frustrating so there's that part of things but then also like you said you know like trying to identify investors who would be able to relate to me in certain ways so like either they're black investor or they're female investor so you know like right now like majority of my investors are women like I only yep. have two male investors on my cap table and the rest or six of them are all women so you know and it's it's because they can relate to the problem they can relate to me and stuff so if you can find a way to find investors who can relate to your problem who can relate to you and who have money then that, that's also that's that's, that's another good combo <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, that's another angle to go down And uh, so, so I guess it wasn't like always easy, like during this fundraising journey, because you ideally, when you launch a business, you can try to bootstrap. But at some point, if you need to build like technology, you need to hire developers. Yeah. So you actually need the money. So, I mean, did you get a lot of uh, like rejection from angels and VC and how did you deal with them? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I definitely got a, a lot of rejections, like a lot of them. But I think for me, like, I just don't take this kind of stuff personally. I'm just like, okay, cool, rejection, move on to the next one. Take what I can learn from that, because some of the rejections might actually be valid reasons. Maybe there's certain things I haven't thought about. So I always ask, I always try and ask for feedback. What do I need to do? What should, how should I be better so that like in the future I can potentially get money from you later on because that's definitely happened to me like one of my current investors the first time I tried you know pitching to him like he said no and then now he's just recently invested so it's been like about a year year and a half time period so sometimes like the rejections can be good because maybe they might need something more from you and once you're able to exhibit that they're like okay cool here's the money I try not to take any of the rejections personally because sometimes I read the reason why I'm like that makes no sense I'm just like you don't know what you're talking about bye <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes they are actually valid valid criticisms so yeah And any, any like really difficult questions you got? I mean, for anyone, you know, maybe who's listening and, and preparing to meet angels and, and VCs. I mean, I know there are different categories of, you know, of investors, but any really difficult questions you got? I think particularly for VCs, one of the things that, one of the main things they're looking for is, you know, how can your business basically be the next unicorn? How can it be the next billion dollar company? And in order to exhibit that you're a next billion dollar company, you need to be able to show that you can reach a hundred million pounds in revenue in the next like five to seven years. And it's like, especially for someone who's this, you're like a first time founder, you're like, whoa, how the hell am I supposed to show this? Like even I'm super struggling, like how am I supposed to exhibit this? Yeah, um, yeah I don't pay myself, but yeah, I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, so really sort of like understanding how to sort of frame your business so that it's like, VC backable because that's the kind of things they care about obviously they care about other things in terms of like you know like you as a founder and all that but at the end of the day the VCs are in this business to make money and they want it to be like the companies that they invest in are these companies that are going to make them a lo loads of money so and I think that's one of the things that they don't really teach it's not something that you're really taught how to do you sort of like you sort of learn it and you especially when you surround yourself with other founders who've done it before like get get advice and tips from them on how they've been able to frame their company in a way that like you know this this there is potential there's the, the market is huge the market is growing and we're the company that's going to you know double triple this market in the next five ten years it's a really really hard thing to re like grasp initially but slowly as you start to learn as you start to do more research as you start to speak to more founders um, and investors it's you slowly figure it out on the way So what are the, the key lessons you've taken away from, from your journey so far? And what are the, what are the mistakes you, you actually made? 
one of the key lessons I've taken is that things take a lot longer than you think they're going to take, <laughs> particularly with, with technology, because like, you know, for us, like we are with our, with our products, like we, we write all our code. We write everything from scratch. We don't like, we don't like use any like plugins or anything like that. Literally every single line of code is ours and which takes a lot of time. And, you know, for me, because, because I'm non-technical. So like, I mean, I do do a bit of coding, but I'm not like, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a software engineer at all. <laughs> for me, it's like, so having to learn to understand that like, things will take a lot longer because because I don't really know how long it would take it's sometimes it's hard to figure out okay so like we have this feature that we want to build like this is how long it should take and then when it does when it takes a lot longer it gets frustrating I'm like oh no it's taking longer then you now feel like you're not good enough all of that stuff so it's like trying to get out of that mentality and really understand that like things take a lot longer than if something's gonna take a month if you think it's going to take a month, add like another month to that. It's going to take three months. <laughs> Double. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then in terms of mistakes, I think one of the things that, again, is part of the stuff that you're not really taught how to do and you just have to learn on the job is, you know, like building a team. Because especially at the early stages, like the team is so, so important because that's, that is make or break. If your team isn't good enough, your, the company will fail. It doesn't matter how amazing your idea is. If you don't have the right people to execute, it's just not going to happen. And at the really early stages, like I was you know, trying to figure out how to actually put together a team. I'd never done this before. So I definitely made a lot of hiring mistakes and, you know, not really necessary. I wasn't really hiring for, because there are two things you should hire for. Obviously hire for skill, but then also hire for attitude. So there are yeah. some people who are very skillful in terms of like, they might be the best software engineer you could possibly find, but if they don't have the right attitude in terms of like, this is an early stage company, we're going to have to make sacrifices. Sometimes we're going to have to work late nights. There's things that are going to be broken. There's no, right now we don't have any structure. So we have to, we have to come up with a structure. So they need to have that sort of proactive attitude to want to build something and create something that they're going to be proud of. And if they don't have that attitude, it's just, it's just not going to work for early stage company it, it might work if they're working for like a large organization that has structures in place and has like you know like they've got managers and all of this stuff whereas we don't have any of that so the the, the type of people that really thrive in, a, in an organization like ours is people who are proactive and who are willing to build things from scratch who are willing to like move quick all of that stuff and not everyone is suited for that so I definitely made a lot of hiring mistakes when it came when it came to that Can you tell me what actually keeps you going? So maybe what's your why? I was reading one of your interviews and you said, you know, running a business is tough and there will be times you feel like giving up. However, having a strong enough why is what can keep you going. Yeah, I think I, I have a few whys, <laughs> but it, related to the business is because I, I genuinely believe in what I'm building. I genuinely believe in what Kashmir is and the potential that Kashmir has in terms of being a you know, the global, being a global dominator. And so for me, that keeps me going. So even if sometimes things might not necessarily be working out, I just think, keep thinking like, this is my end goal. This is what I want to build. And I just somehow find a way to um, motivate myself um, despite any obstacles that might come come my way. And another thing that keeps me going is that even though like, yes, I'm building Kashmir, it's FinTech and all that, there's so much more I want to do beyond Kashmir. And it's like, I just see Kashmir as like a stepping stone into what else I want to do. So there's other like, you know, business ideas I have. There's other like, I there's things like around like philanthropy that I really want to like get into. So 
there, there are a few things I'm really passionate about. So one is hygiene poverty, another is homelessness, and another the third is um girls' education, particularly for like because I'm from Nigeria, so like grassroots level education for girls in Nigeria. And so those those three things I'm really passionate about, and I feel like Kashmir is like my stepping stone into helping me solve those problems in the future. So when I think about like now when things are stressful, I'm like, I just think about, okay, these are the problems I want to solve in the world. So just, just keep going and it will help <laughs> you get there. Bigger picture. I love it. Thank you, Yuna. Can I ask you some quick fire question? We always ask these like five questions to all the guests. Yeah. You can tell me what is your top financial goal? So I guess in terms of short to medium term, I'll probably say buying a house. 12 to 18 months. And what's the best financial decision you've ever made? Oh, the best financial decision I made was um, saving half of my salary every month when I do my gap year. So that helped me fund my university. So that was definitely a really good. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So I don't actually have a student loan um, because I, I saved up a lot of money during my gap That's year. That's amazing. <laughs> well done. Uh, and, the, and the worst financial decision? Oh, I don't know, you know, I've, I'm actually quite, I feel like I'm quite good with money. I don't think there's anything I've done that's really stupid. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what is financial independence for you? I think for me, financial independence is about, you know, being able to afford what I want when I want without having to think about it, without having to cut down on anything else. So that's, that's, what, that's what I believe financial independence is. Great. And what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? food <laughs> food is like my number one thing like I save a lot of my because obviously now we're in lockdown so not really going out at all but um so I, I save a, a lot of my like my salary and stuff but everything else just goes into food I just buy so much food and I don't realize it but it's like it all adds up like Uber Eats and Deliveroo I need to delete those apps like very soon <laughs> or, or include it into a uh, cashmere <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> Thank you so much, Irena. Can you just tell me what's what's next for you and uh, and Kashmir? Yeah, sure. I mean, so you know, twenty twenty one is going to be an exciting year. Like we're really focusing on growth. So we're going to grow, build out our team, build out like you know, acquire as many users as we can, particularly in the UK, and then start to see how we can expand into uh, expand abroad. So particularly the US, the US is the next market that we want to tap into because we see a huge huge opportunity there. Yeah. Um, and then also looking at you know how, like I said earlier, like expanding into other verticals. So that it's not just about luxury, fashion, and beauty, but also looking at how we can help people save up for like their favorite holiday or like you know like a like an experience or like dining and things like that so yeah we've got loads of exciting plans in, in the works exciting i'm really looking forward to that can you tell us where can we find you and where can we register with uh, with Kashmir? Yeah, sure. Um, so our website is cashmereapp.co.uk. So right now we're a web app, so you can just access that on your browser. Um, we are launching a mobile app to run next year. And then we're also on Instagram and Twitter as cashmere underscore HQ. Super. And we can find you on Twitter and Instagram also? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram as Urena O, so U-R-E-N-N-A-O. And then my Twitter is Urena Alexa, so U-R-E-N-N-A-L-E-X-A. It's because my middle name is Alexa. So I was like, you ran Alexa. <laughs> People always wonder, where did that come from? I'm just like, yeah, that's why. <laughs> I made it in 2009 when I was like 17. We all have weird uh, Twitter handles. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mine is like Emily LDN, Emily London. I mean, it's short, but... 
Yorana, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed this conversation with you and really wish you all the best with Kashmir. We hope to see you, you know, on, on all our iPhones very soon uh, in the UK, in the US. And, you know, let us know when you have any updates. We I'll post all the links in the episode notes. So if you guys want to check out Kashmir and open your account, just look at the notes. Yorana, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And I hope to see you soon. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> Bye-bye. Right. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a couple of seconds to rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Also, don't forget to join our community on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe to our newsletter on vespot.com. Feel free to email me with your comments and questions over at emily at vespot.com. Thank you. Speak to you soon.